Will you turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I hope you keep your Bibles open with me to this passage in Mark as we continue our series. Uh, Again, picking up here in Mark chapter 9, working our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're about halfway through, and we met some particularly poignant moments in our uh, weeks before Advent. We left off at the Mount of Transfiguration, at a powerful moment just after Jesus makes these declarations about himself, about his, uh, about his crucifixion, and about his resurrection. He then goes up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and reveals to them his glory as they meet with Moses and Elijah. And, uh, and, and there's this uh, incredible, literally, mountaintop experience for Peter, James, and John. Along the way, we made these two observations in our closing weeks before Advent together. We observed that Peter is right to call Jesus the Christ. Why? Well, because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, and yet Peter doesn't really fully understand what that means as he reveals very quickly in his rebuke of Jesus regarding uh, Jesus' pronouncement of the crucifixion. So we've seen that Peter is right to call Jesus the Christ, but we've also seen that Jesus is right, that the Son must suffer. Jesus is the Christ, and the Christ will suffer. The Son of Man will suffer, be rejected, he'll be killed, and he will rise. And the outcome of the suffering of the Christ is life. That's an essential thing that we remember and that we repeat and we really come back to over and over again that the, the, the consequence, the reality, the, the, the result, the purchase of the suffering of 
the Christ is life. Jesus has secured life, particularly for those who would follow after him in faith. Even if for a little while in this life, we who follow after him will suffer like him. And so my prayer this morning as we go open up the word together is that God would give us ears to listen to Jesus just as the Father has instructed us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning and that we have a confidence, we have an ability to open up and see and hear, remember that we have this, your word as a means of knowing our God. Lord, these words would remain words, perhaps even accusations, or words to be argued with this morning, except you work among your people, that we would receive your word with faith, that we would believe. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in the midst of the people, all of us who are gathered, that we would hear your word and receive it with faith and so be changed. Lord, we are dependent upon you. Every one of us are dependent upon you for your work in the midst of the congregation this morning. And so we ask, give us ears to hear. Allow us that we would listen. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. This morning's passage, we want to pay attention to what's there. We're going to pay attention beginning in verse 14, where uh, they, that is Jesus and Peter and James and John, are coming down and entering a city, and they see a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Jesus is returning with three of his disciples, which leaves nine of his disciples back in the city busy doing work. Well, Jesus, Peter, James, and John have just returned from that Mount of Transfiguration. And meanwhile, there's this group, this crowd that has gathered around. And we get to see some of the details going on. But the bottom line is this. We quickly find out it's not going well. The nine disciples are not having a good day. A father and a son are not having a good day. And the scribes are arguing about it. And Jesus comes back down from his glory-filled mountaintop experience with Peter, James, and John. And what does he find? He finds faithlessness. He makes it explicit what he finds. He finds a faithless generation, among whom, let us note, are nine of his disciples, a faithless people. I think there's an application note just to pause for a second and observe something here, that there is something about busyness and faithlessness that tends to go well together. The disciples, they are busy. I mean, they're, they're more than busy. They're overwhelmed. They have a crowd around them. They have a demon-possessed boy and a needy father. And they're doing the work that Jesus gave them to do, right? They're, they're busy in ministry back in the town while Jesus is off doing whatever Jesus does on mountains, right? And they've got the religious leaders, and they're griping and, and arguing and so on, and they're causing a ruckus. And Jesus assesses the situation of the busyness, and he says, faithless. There is a pause for us, and I'm going to use a, a word. I'm going to use it a, really a number of times during the course of our time, especially when we come back to this idea at the end of the passage, but the idea of ministers of the gospel. Let's be clear, I'm not just talking about me or maybe the elders or maybe the staff at Cross Point Coast. 
we are partners together in the gospel, which means we are partakers of the gospel, right, congregation? But we're not only partakers of the gospel, we are partners in the proclamation of the gospel, and that makes us together ministers, servants of the gospel. And we can be found to be very, very busy servants, right? And sometimes we can get ourselves worked up into a ruckus with a crowd and other religious leaders, and we're just arguing together. And what Jesus' assessment of the situation is in all of our busyness, in all of our ministry, as ministers of the gospel, right? Faithless. A lot of work. A lot of hubbub. Faithless. This is what happens when the disciples are apart from Jesus. It's a bit of a theme. Uh, it's a, sort of an image that Jesus holds, or that, that, that the, the gospel writer Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, holds out for us to observe as we read the gospel of Mark. That every time the disciples find themselves away from Jesus, they fall Apart, We saw it back in Mark chapter 6. At the end of that chapter, Jesus sends his disciples ahead of him to cross the Sea of Galilee. And when they get ahead of him across the Sea of Galilee, where he sent them, by the way, they, he looks at them and he says, sees they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. They were in trouble, and Jesus comes out walking on the water and goes to them, calms the sea again and enters into them and brings peace to their chaos when they're apart from him. Jesus and the gospel writer Mark are giving us some images here. This is true of disciples to this day. We fall apart when we're apart from Jesus. Note that when Jesus arrives in our passage this morning, not only are the disciples unable to do anything about the demon, the father's unable to do anything about the demon. The son is unable to do anything about the demon. The scribes who are arguing with the disciples, they're also unable to do anything. You have a whole town who is unable. And then Jesus arrives. Jesus enters a desperate, argumentative, chaotic scene and the crowd turns to him, the passage says. They turn to him, they, they run to him, and they run to him with expectation. This is another case in Mark when people, whether they're doctors or fathers or fishermen, and we could go on and name the groups of people that have tried everything to fix a desperate situation. And every time they fail. And then the only hope and the sure rescue enters the scene. And Jesus brings peace to chaos. He brings rescue to desperate need. Friends, this is often the circumstance in the church. There are little images that Mark gives us that are wonderful metaphors for the church, like the storm-tossed little church. Remember the, the church in a boat? from the disciples out there tossed around in the boat. An incredible metaphor for the church in need of Jesus to enter the boat, right? And this is the church again, busy in ministry, chaotic, storm-tossed, desperate. We have the world, we have supposed religious people, we have need, we have opportunity, and we're trying to do something about it. But without Jesus and without faith, it's just all jumbled up, and perhaps we find ourselves, and, and I think that this is probably true of us right now, right where we are today, we find ourselves intimidated, fearful, 
and perhaps even angry. And at very least, perhaps better, sad. And Jesus appears. What if our moment-by-moment expectation when we were in the town with all that going on around us, what if our moment-by-moment expectation and sense of need was that Jesus would appear? What was that? What if that was our, our moment by moment longing, our daily dependence and faith was Jesus? This doesn't work unless you're here. This is what was true. This is what is true. What if we lived like it? What if we kept in step with reality and our need for the Savior? Now, as we look at this passage, that's just the introduction. It's just the scene that we enter into when Jesus enters the town. One of the things that we're going to see very quickly is that the true miracle that Mark wants to highlight in his record of this miracle is not the miracle that you might expect, but rather the fact that Jesus works the miracle of faith. This is what Mark wants to highlight for us. We're going to see that in the faith of two people, okay? First of all, the faith of the disciples, this group of people. Let's see first the sovereignty of God over the entire situation, all right? God, Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but Jesus as Lord and God is still sovereign over what is taking place in the town, and the disciples are busy. They're doing stuff. They perhaps they're even saying the words and so on and doing the actions that Jesus had taught them to do for the most part. But the Lord is sovereign. They, as the disciples are doing all the right things, they, they're supposed to do the, all, the, all these things that they've done in all the other places, all the other circumstances where they've found need. But this time they're finding as they're, they're doing gospel ministry, It's not working. It's not working like it used to. The Lord God is not healing the boy through the labors of the disciples. And they're concerned. The father's concerned. And the scribes are arguing. And the crowd's in a chaotic mess. I would suggest that they may have been dutiful labors that the disciples were engaged in. And friends, to be engaged in dutiful behavior is good. It is, after all, our duty. But they were not faithful behaviors. Faithful in the technical sense. Think about the word. They were not filled with faith. They were dutiful. They were what ought be done but they were not done in faith, and so they were not faithful. Friends, dutifulness is not automatically faithfulness. How does God increase the faith of the disciples? How does Jesus work the miracle of faith in these dutiful, busy disciples? I would observe at least four things. First, Jesus as sovereign Lord does not bring healing to the boy without prayer. That's the first gift to the disciples. He doesn't heal the boy. Honestly, as we'll see, it's a gift 
to the father, and it's a gift to the boy. It's a gift to the crowds. It's a gift to the disciples. The first gift to show them faith is that he does not heal them, heal the boy without prayer. The second is this. He calls out their unbelieving participation in an entire generation. You see, when Jesus assesses the situation, he looks at them and he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? The word oh is important, all right? We don't tend to use that word very much, but honestly, that was generally reserved for poetry or powerful narrative. It wasn't something that people went around saying very much either. In Jesus' day, Jesus says, oh, as an expression of emotion. He looks at them and he sees, oh, faithless generation. How long? He cries out like the prophets. when I mean, they're looking over a sinful city. How long must I be with you? And the disciples are standing there. I mean, you're talking to them, right? <laughs> right? No. You get nine, and now you have 12 disciples standing there with no way to do anything except for duty, and they're faithless. And then we have the third gift that Jesus brings to the table. He uses the fledgling faith of a father as a guide for the disciples. We see him do this over and over. He uses this faith that he calls forth in the one in whom he's going to work the miracle or for whom he would work the miracle in order to tutor his disciples in faith. And finally, at the end of the passage, he calls them to prayer. He's explicit about one of the most precious behaviors of faith. If there is a duty for faith, it would be prayer. Consider what a tragedy it would have been if the disciples would have successfully cast out the demon apart from prayer. A, a tragedy. Imagine the father and the crowd would have been impressed with the disciples. They would have gained quite a name for themselves rather than for God. The disciples would have increased their trust in their abilities rather than in God. And the generation would be left without a witness and a call to faith. God was kind to do this work and to do it in this way. Jesus is at all times bringing his disciples along to, to follow him in faith. This is Jesus' great endeavor throughout the Gospel of Mark. It's the center ministry with the disciples where Jesus' preaching ministry is the proclamation of the gospel to make clear the good news of the kingdom of God that the Messiah has come and the Messiah has come to die and to rise. He's proclaiming the gospel. But the center of his work among the disciples is to bring them along in faith in the gospel that he preaches. That's why we begin our time very often when we pray at the beginning of the message. And I hope you're, we are praying, right? That we are praying, Lord, we can hear, you can proclaim, you can make the words known. Give us and do the work of faith among the people. 
we see Jesus doing the miraculous work of giving faith and bringing along and nurturing the faith of the disciples, but we also see Jesus doing the work of giving faith to the Father. Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus asked the Father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Jesus recognizes and listens to the Father's grief at a lifelong pain of watching his son. Jesus lets the crowds and the disciples hear the desperation of the situation. You see this every single time. Jesus hears, Jesus asks, Jesus listens, Jesus touches, Jesus walks with, Jesus guides. He is incarnate, present with his people. And we see a compassion in how long has he been doing this? From childhood. And the crowds see it. They see this situation isn't only not going well, it's desperate. Long-term desperate. And then verse 22. It's often cast him into the fire, into the water. Why? What's the business of the unclean spirit? What's to destroy him? That's the business of the enemy, destruction. He's not a builder. He's a terror down. But if you can do anything, the father says, this is a key point. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What does he ask for? He asks for compassion. His question is, are you able? The father sees compassion in Jesus. He knows that that's a place where he can press. He's heard compassion in Jesus' question. We're right to read it with the compassion that we read it because the father sees it with the compassion that it was asked. And then he roots his request in Jesus' compassion. His hope hinges on Jesus' pity. But he's not sure that Jesus is able. Would you at least, Jesus, give it a try? I see you want it, Jesus. I see your compassion toward me. Could you try healing my son? It's a key point. I want to compare the father in this passage to the leper way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. I would encourage you to write that down in your Bible and do some comparison and prayer even over these comparative people who come to Jesus in desperate need. In Mark chapter 1, verse 40, a leper came to him imploring and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. What is the hinge? What is the hinge of the leper's hope? The Lord is able. If he wants to do this, he can do it. He is able. And then the next verse. In Mark 1, 41, it says, Moved with pity, compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the leper, touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. There is no question for the leper who is able. His question is, are you good? 
Do you have pity? And Jesus immediately has pity on him, reaches out with his power, and touches the leper who has faith in him. The leper is confident that Jesus is able, and he's met with Jesus' compassion. This father is confident in Jesus' compassion, but he questions whether Jesus is able. And that is an astronomically difficult problem. Because it's a question about the nature of who Jesus is. Now make no mistake, to question either of these ultimately is a problem. But to question whether Jesus is able is to put Jesus in a completely other category than what he is. You see, when Jesus responds to the man, look at it with me in verse 23. He says, Jesus said to him, if I can... All things are possible for one who believes. The question is if Jesus can do this. And Jesus says, of course I can. Do you know who I am? The problem is not Jesus' ability. The problem is the man's if about his ability. That said, listen to what, carefully to what Jesus says. He says, all things are possible. Now there's, I was sharing with the, uh, the team that, that leads us uh, in this morning, and I was just saying that this is one of the most quoted passages and the least known passages. Be careful when you know a Bible verse, but you have no idea where it came from, all right? This is one of those passages, all things are possible, right? But did you know that that took place in the context of a, a child being cleansed of an unclean spirit? Do you know the context? Do you know what Jesus is doing in saying something like this? What is Jesus correcting in the passage when he says these words? Jesus is saying that he is not some wandering miracle worker. He's not somebody who can get his charms and talismans together to work some slight percentage of the time. That would be a completely other category of person than Jesus the Messiah. He's not a 25% healer. If he is able. And he's not like the dumb idols that remain silent almost all the time except for some coincidental moment in which you can then ascribe to the idol that you prayed this morning and you got healed this afternoon. Jesus is not a wandering miracle worker, and he's not an idol. He is a completely other category of person. He's God. He is the Christ. Jesus is able because God is able. And then we have this statement, for the one who believes. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible. For one who believes. Why? Why would that be so? How does that work? It's not because of the powerful ability of the believer. It's not the believer is some completely other category of person who is able. It isn't because of the power of the believer's faith. Why are all things possible for the believer in Jesus? Because these two realities are combined. Two realities. Because all things are possible with God. 
That is the first reality. This is what is true. This is what the scriptures give testimony to, literally from beginning all the way till the end, particularly in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. Jesus says, with man, this is impossible. He's speaking about the salvation of a rich man. Impossible. You think casting out a demon, an unclean spirit from a boy? Try salvation for one bent on greed. With the man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The believer is not the powerful one. The Lord is. He is the miracle worker. 100% of the time that he is bent on miracle. Able. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Because Jesus moves toward his people. Compassion and pity. Mercy and grace. We can summarize it with steadfast love. This too is borne out and witnessed to from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. The generosity and love of the Lord for his people. Compassion is at the ready for the one who believes. This is the point. For the one who believes the Lord is both willing and able. He is both powerful to heal and the lover of our souls. What is our faith? What is our belief? What is the, our belief is not that we'll get something. Not if we can believe hard enough that we want something, we can believe it and get it. That, that makes the belief in the something. But that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. It's not the witness anywhere in any of the scriptures. Our belief and our confidence is always in the Lord God. He is able. He is the lover of our souls. And friends, there are so many pitfalls and misuses of what Jesus teaches here, but if we listen to what he actually says, he's powerfully clear. I was thinking this morning that it's like we should make a list of affirmations and denials from this passage. We should affirm the things that it actually says, and we should deny, at least from this passage, the things that this passage doesn't say. We affirm God is able. We affirm our need for faith. We affirm the compassion of Jesus. We affirm our need for the wisdom of God. Remember, God does two things in this passage. He doesn't heal, right? And he heals. Two things, two separate times. God must be wise. He must know what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and what is needed. We affirm that we often know what to ask for, but we don't often know what we need. We deny that possible, all things are possible, means some percentage chance that God can pull this off. Possible does not mean the rolling of some cosmic dice and that if it rolls a one, you win. We deny that the believer can manipulate God with bigger and stronger faith. Friends, that means you are all powerful. You have power not of God, 
You have power over God. No. We deny that the believer has any right or ability to demand or declare a miracle. The believer, in and of himself. Friends, I think the word believer is even the wrong word for that idea. The Lord wills good for us, but that does not mean automatically that he will do what we ask of him. Why? Why, though? How? Because the Lord wills good for us. He does not say that we can do whatever we want. It is the Lord who does what he wants. Friends, that's where somebody writes a song. Because you know what's next. What does the Lord, what has the Lord revealed that he wants? He wants good for his people. I mean, you were here, many of you. When we celebrated Christmas together, we, we turned to Revelation 21, and he's wiping away tears from eyes, and he's giving a gift of kingdom to all those that he saved and kept for himself. What does the Lord want? He wants good for his people. Our faith rests on his power. It's true. But our faith also rests on his wisdom. His wisdom. I think of it like this. A number of years ago, uh, I read an article that sort of rebuked the father that is me, all right? And my guess is, if you're a parent in the room, it rebukes you as well. The way that, you know, when you're standing in an aisle at the grocery store and they put everything that a kid wants at a kid's eye level, you know, and you have to reach down to grab it, but it's right there for them. And you get so ticked off that they're asking and asking and asking, Right? And the article said, thank God they ask. You see, the ask tells you a couple of things about your child. I mean, let's be honest, it probably tells you, tells you that they're spoiled, you know, and they're greedy. <laughs> but it also tells you that they think that you're powerful. I remember the first, literally, I remember where I was standing. I, can, I could probably count off which aisle in the checkout it was in when I first saw my mom lay down a $100 bill buy groceries. Uh, that lady's powerful. Gum, please. <laughs> you know? And I didn't get it. She never bought me. Well, that's not true. She rarely bought me gum, right? 25 cents, $100 bill. Now, I didn't know that if you do the math, that was about 20% of our entire income, you know? But I thought my mom was powerful. I thought she was able. And it tells you not only that the child might be spoiled and the child might be greedy, and the child thinks that the parent is powerful. It also says the fact that the child would ask you means that the child thinks you're good. The child thinks you're not only powerful, but that you might just do this for the child. And if you're anything like this, Dad, sometimes you look down and you see their eyes, and you do. Why? You love them. Because they're not wrong. You are able, and you do love them. Friends, this is the disposition of our God. He is powerful. He's able. And he's good. He's disposed with compassion. And he's wise. And he doesn't buy the gum every time. He knows what is right and good. And in more serious things than gum, in a grocery aisle, 
he is wise. Immediately, verse 24 tells us, immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. I don't understand. I don't get it. And I'm rustling a bit here. But I I correct something that I said earlier. This isn't a matter of if. You are able. This is one of the greatest expressions of faith ever cried out by a desperate man. This man knew exactly what Jesus was teaching him and exactly what Jesus was calling him to. Surely this ranks with a thief on the cross in that simple proclamation of faith. Remember me. The meaning of the Father's explanation is simply this. You are able. I'm nothing. I don't even know that I qualify as one who believes. But you are able Do we believe that? Do you believe that the Lord is able? You need to do some work there and allow yourself to hear the Son speak to you. The Lord is able. And are we willing to humble ourselves to understand that to make such a confession of faith does not make any demands upon the Lord? It's like me I, I do remember when that $100 bill went down, I'm like, you just no gum? When I turn around and make an ask and I say, you're able, I have no right to make a demand on my mom in that grocery aisle. It's a confession that the Lord is able, that with the Lord all things are possible. This is the nature of our belief. This is what makes us a believer. And makes us so powerfully connected with what is possible that the Lord has made all things possible. But it's not a demand that all must believe that the Lord will heal. Jesus doesn't say it, and it's not what he means. There's a a quote by a, a, a pastor named Alexander McLaren. He says, whatever goes beyond God's word is not faith, but something else assuming its appearance. We confess the Lord is able. This we affirm. We confess the promises of the Lord according to the word of God. We confess the character of God, his righteousness, his love, his compassion. We confess these things and when we stand and we wait upon what our faith has confessed about our God. We don't move. That's faithfulness. Let me put it this way. We ought to confess our faith but we ought to rebuke our presumption. You might expect a church with doctrinal beliefs and practices like ours to offer such a warning. You probably saw this passage coming, had it all teed up, and you said, yeah, he's probably going to say something like that. But let me offer another warning for us that probably we need to hear even more. On the other hand, let us rebuke the times And the faithlessness that believes that anything that is right and good is impossible for our God. How many times have we prayed and said, that ain't going to happen. That sort of thing never happens. That's impossible. Note the times when we believe someone is beyond the power of God. Or we believe that some clinging sin is beyond God's deliverance. 
How many times have you come to the prayer of confession and said, here we go again? Friends, that is also worthy of the rebuke of Jesus, faithless generation. Kent Hughes writes, we fail to believe the promises of his word or to pray in faith for their fulfillment. God, according to who you are, according to what you have said, I trust you will do your able. And then we have this appearance, a miraculous appearance, this miraculous appearance of little faith, the confession of the Father. Let me speak for just a moment about the Father's unbelief, what you might call this little faith. Friends, the moment you trust at all in the God who actually is, in the Jesus as the Scripture has actually revealed him to us, that moment is the birth of faith. Any genuine faith, any love, any hope is a gift from God. And the one whom the Lord draws to himself at all, in the least, is the one that the Lord will keep to the uttermost. Friends, there is no little faith. True faith is not impressed with itself. If it was, it's not faith. Faith never has the self as its object. That's, by by definition, a very different thing. It's called self-righteousness or self-sufficiency. But faith has the Lord alone as the object and sufficient hope. Faith declares this. You are good. You are able. And I trust it all to you. The Father confesses faith. But he also confesses inadequacy. Inadequacy. For the faith-filled disciple is not a problem. I wonder how many believers in this room have wrestled in desperation, in despair, over your inadequate faith. Friends, the second you recognize it's inadequate, you should have no problem at all. It's part of our faith-filled confession. I am inadequate. Even my faith is inadequate, Jesus. You're able. You're able. To confess that our faith is inadequate isn't a problem because it's a simple confession of reality. To name things that actually are is never a bad idea. It is the glorious place from which one who longs for God meets God. Because Honestly, it might be the first time that you haven't presumed to be him. It's a lesson that the disciples had failed to learn in this passage. According to the Lord's sovereignty that prevented their ministry from being effective in this town, Jesus brings along not only a father, not only a son, but his disciples and the crowd with them. And so we close by looking at faith, prayer, and gospel ministry. Look again at the scripture Look at verse 25 with me. When they saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. Jesus rebuked the spirit, the mute and deaf spirit, and the spirit flees. Look at verse 26. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. Crying out, convulsing him, 
He looks as though the demon had finally won. The unclean spirit had finally destroyed the boy. And then we look at verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Friends, Mark chose some of the most powerful words he possibly could have used. Jesus does what he's done so many times. He reaches out and he touches the boy. He takes him by the hand. He brings him resurrection from the dead. That's what Mark says. He arose. He experienced resurrection. The disciples had been asking what Jesus meant, that he would die and then rise. And here Jesus gives them an immediate glimpse of miraculous power. The boy was as though dead, and then at the touch of Jesus, he's raised to life. What does the resurrection mean? It means that the Lord is actually Lord. That for the Lord, all things are possible. You're afraid of those who would betray the Messiah? Those who would accuse the Messiah? You're afraid of those who would kill the Messiah? You don't get it yet, disciples. The Messiah will rise. All things are possible. And now that they're alone at the end of the passage, the disciples have some questions. Why couldn't they do what Jesus did? It's kind of the point, right? It's part of the confession of faith. They had not yet confessed. They are inadequate. The Lord is adequate. They'd been successful back in Mark chapter 3, but here they're unsuccessful. Here they did the deed of casting out demons. They performed the work of casting out an unclean spirit, but they did so without faith and dependence. Again, Kent Hughes says they believed in the process. They believed in themselves because they'd done it previously. But they're counted among the faithless generation because they didn't believe in the Lord. That's the point. How often do we as disciples and ministers of the gospel presume not so much upon the power of God, but upon our previous success and personal abilities? We cease to pray. We fail to confess dependence. We don't spend time with the Lord in faith-filled confession and communion. Friends, just a, a quick story before we close. The years ago, right at about 10 years ago, I was standing at the back of the Holiday Inn where we were about to gather for a celebration service. And I, I'd prepared, I'd done all the work, I'd put together my notes, just like I always do. And I was ready to go up and speak. I knew all the words I was going to say. Honestly, back then, I had almost every one of them written down. And I said, Jesus, I can't do this. And I was kind of arguing with myself, you know. I'm like, yeah, you can. It's right there. Like, you just do it. You just go up there and you stand up. I wasn't afraid to do it. I, didn't, I wasn't having stage fright. The fact is, I knew what needed to be done. Dead souls needed to be raised to life. This unbelieving heart needed to believe. Sin that had tormented needed to be cast off. I can't do any of that. I can preach. I can say words that I wrote down earlier in the week. But I can't do that. Friends, this is the nature of gospel 
ministry. I, there's rarely a time that I stand up to preach or I go out to lunch with a friend and we're making disciples together. There's barely a time that I'm not rebuked by prayerlessness. And I wonder how in the world did I spend eight hours in sermon preparation, but I can't remember praying. <laughs> Friends, this is the rebuke that we hear together. Four things for us to remember. When the Lord is not near, we're lost. The greatest miracle we need from the Lord is that he would give us faith. Faith confesses that the Lord is able. And faith-filled ministry is a labor of absolute dependence. So the call for us this morning is I call you to confess Christ. To confess the Christ that actually is today. You need forgiveness of sin. You need the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in your place so that you might be raised to newness of life. You need his presence to calm the chaos of your life and give you a Christ-centered perspective. So I call you to confess your faith, yes, but also confess your dependence upon the Lord in the inadequacy of your faith. Confess your need for Christ to go with us into a faithless generation in which we so often participate Send us again, Jesus, but go with us. We're not going anywhere without you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace to us, that you've spoken words that are true, that you don't pull punches, but you do it right. We confess that you are the wise one. You are not only able, you are not only good, but you are wise. Lord, I pray that you would train us more quickly to cry out for the impossible, that our prayer would become more bold, not less bold, more bold, that we would cry out for things that are ludicrous, even silly. We've just never seen it before. But that we would cry out for healing, for things that we have we tossed aside. Lord, that we would cry out for transformation, for sin that has remained too long. Lord, we pray for salvation of someone who has so thoroughly rejected you. We cry out for a reformation and revival in the midst of our own church and county. But we don't believe it'll happen. Lord, help our unbelief. We know and we confess you are able. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness at every moment, new every morning, great is your faithfulness. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.